Welcome. I'm Uri. And I'm Rifki, and you're listening to Talking Tachlis, the podcast where we talk about Jewish life and life in general. So, Uri, any good feedback on last week's episode? Yeah. Um, I got a bunch of feedback. People found it pretty interesting. Some people hadn't heard about um, the story we spoke about, the three academics who wrote all of these hoax uh, papers and submitted them to journals, and a bunch of them got published, and they were trying to make a statement about the state of academia, mm-hmm. and we just we talked about what that means to us and what mm-hmm. we thought about it. Um, but one, one comment that my friend and friend of the show, Neil, uh, said to me was that something that he noticed in the last couple of weeks from us was that we spoke about more general, cultural, and political kind of stories, but uh-huh. we didn't really relate them to Judaism per se. Mm-hmm. And he said that he thought that was what makes us kind of right. unique and that he That's was curious to hear how we could have connected either or both of those stories right. to Jewish, whether it's Jewish values or maybe like Jewish history or or Bible, Tanakh kind of stuff, just in order to put it in perspective somehow. Right. Yeah, I hear that. I mean, the truth is with, the, with Brett Kavanaugh, which was two weeks ago, I think we did talk a little bit about what chuva means, but we didn't really right. get into it so much. Um, and I think that's that's one angle that we could have taken. I think yeah, that's he suggested he suggested maybe looking at some Me Too type situations from Tanakh. Right. And uh, I don't. It's a lot of interesting possibilities. A lot of interesting there. stuff there. I think uh, obviously a lot of those stories are complicated, especially when looked at through a modern lens. Yeah. So I don't know how. Well, they're complicated today, also. Like Me Too is. They're, they're still complicated stories. Like the stories and happening the now are compl- yeah. Right, right. But I mean, like looking at the Torah as like a paradigm for what is good and what we should be striving for right. isn't always so simple when there are sure. very tough Well, that's, that's the paradox kind of, of the Torah, right? The Torah is both something that we like to say, you know, was given in a certain time period and was given with a certain context. And that that's critical in how we look at Torah. But at the same time, we say this kind of completely different thing, which is that the Torah is timeless, right? The Torah is meant to be completely relevant to someone 2,000 years ago or to me today or to someone 2,000 right. years from now. So it's a difficult thing to, to For parse sure. out. And I don't think we have anything to hide in the Torah. Like, you know, there's complicated stories and we can talk about why they're right. complicated. And, and there could be something interesting in connecting some of those stories to yeah. uh, what's there's happening. A, there's now. a lot of power in Torah and there's a lot of right. men and women and difficult dynamics. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever heard of the, the Bechdel test? No. Uh, there's this woman, Alison Bechdel, and she's kind of like a, in some ways, she's like a cultural critic. She's also, she's a cartoonist. She does pretty incredible work. She actually wrote a Broadway show, I think, a few years ago. I think she wrote Fun Home. Have you heard of it? No. Um, I think it was based on her graphic novel. So anyway, um, she there's something called the Bechdel test, which she came up with. And basically, it's three rules for something in media. Um, and it's a very simple test for a movie or for really for any kind of media. It's whether A, there are at least two named women in the piece, B, they talk to each other, and C, they talk to each other about something other than a man. And and what is it a test for? It's a test to see if it's something that we should be supporting, basically. And this is, I think, from the 80s. But basically, the argument was that there are very few films, and I think it originally came from film, there are very few films that even pass this test, mm. which is actually crazy, right? You think about, like, um, Star Wars, right? <laughs> like, I don't think something like this exists. Um, and it's interesting because uh, like five years ago, someone mentioned to me about the Bechdel test and Tanakh, and I started thinking about it. And I think the book of Ruth, mm-hmm. a couple 
of the conversations that Naomi and Ruth have, which is like, here's where you should go pick. But even that is about Boaz. So it's like, oh, here's your family member, your kinsman. So honestly, I'm not sure if any of the books of Tanakh, I think you can make an argument about uh, Miguel at Root. But I think it's it's an interesting yeah, that's thing. Inter- that is definitely interesting. Not to say, uh, of course, have you ever seen the movie Gravity? No. Uh, it's really cool. You should see it. It's like a really beautiful film. Do you know? Do you know what it yeah, is? Yeah, space and uh, yeah. what's her name? It's Sandra Bullock. Right. So I, I think of that movie as pretty feminist in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. but that movie definitely wouldn't pass the Bechdel test because there are only a couple of characters in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, it's not a foolproof sort of test, but I do think it's kind of interesting, and it's also interesting in the context of Tanakh. Right. Yeah. I mean, I th- I'm not sure how I feel about that as like a test of worthiness of a, a story or a wokeness, I guess, but I do understand it and I think yeah. it's interesting. I, I mean, I think you're right that in some ways it, it obviously does not fully encapsulate, you know, things are more complicated than that, but for considering it, I think this, the Bechdel test came around before either of us were born. So mm-hmm. I think it's like pretty impressive. Yeah. Okay. It ain't a man's world. You go, girl. No more sugar and spice. And everything nice. It ain't a man's world. You go, girl. No more sugar and spice. And everything nice. It's a sweet thing. And it's all in me. I can be anything that I want to be. Don't consider me a minority. Open up your eyes and maybe you'll see. Well, getting into this week's topic... A few weeks ago, on October 2nd, 22-year-old Lara Al-Qasem landed in Ben-Gurion Airport in Israel with a valid student visa in order to study in a master's program in human rights at Jerusalem's Hebrew University. She was questioned in the airport and subsequently detained there due to her alleged involvement in the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement, or BDS, against Israel. Ms. Al-Qasem was permitted to return to the U.S., but she instead chose to remain in detention and take her case to the Israeli court system. The decision was originally upheld, but the case eventually made its way to the Israeli Supreme Court, where this past Thursday on October 18th, the Supreme Court ruled that there was not sufficient reason to detain Al-Qasem and she was permitted entry into Israel. Here is a piece produced by the Jerusalem Post explaining the story. University of Florida student Lara Al-Qasem, who was barred from entering Israel under a law against pro-Palestinian boycotters, filed an appeal with Israel's high court Sunday. Not a question of opinions. We're not looking to decide on prevention of entry based on opinions, based on somebody who supports, somebody who called one, somebody who signed a petition. We're looking at actions. We have clear criteria. And we believe that Ms. Al-Qasem meets those criteria based on her actions and on the actions of the organization of which she was a senior leader over several years. The Supreme Court found that Lara Al-Qasem does not meet the test of a BDS activist. What is, mo- what is more, the court found that the evidence is so weak and so transparent that there is an impression that she was not targeted for alleged activities, but rather for her political opinions. So as we hear in that recording, an Israeli law passed in 2017 allows the Interior Ministry to bar entry into Israel for supporters of the BDS movement if they are non-citizens of Israel. Ms. Al-Qasem was president of the University of Florida chapter of Students for Justice in Palestine, which supports the BDS movement. Among the other concerns relating to Ms. Al-Qasem was her documented support for Rasmia Odeh, a Palestinian woman who was convicted of killing two Israeli students in a 1969 terrorist attack. Lara Al-Qasem is not the first high-profile detainment in connection with this new law. Simone Zimmerman, a founder of the left-wing group If Not Now, a group which we have discussed extensively on this podcast... So you all know everything about it. Of course. ...was detained in question for hours in Ben-Gurion Airport, as was well-known left-wing Zionist and journalist Peter Beinart. 
Both Zimmerman and Beinart were permitted into the country within a matter of hours. In the case of Beinart, a statement from Prime Minister Netanyahu himself was issued, clarifying that the detainment was a mistake. So, Rifki, what do you think? Israel says that the BDS movement is not just critical of Israel, it's anti-Semitic, and the government considers its supporters to be genuine threats to the country. Do you agree with that? Or do you think this law is doing more harm than good for Israel's image? I, I actually think that this whole situation with Al-Qasem has been so ridiculous from the start, Uri. Um, I've, this has now been going on for a few weeks, and I think it's basically over at this point. The mm-hmm. you know the high court, the Supreme Court, at has least decided, for her. Yeah, exactly. Good point. Um, has decided that she's allowed into the country. She's allowed to go to Hebrew. She probably only missed about a week of school because mm-hmm. I think they don't start till after the Chagim. But I think this case is is so ridiculous, right? I think the Beinart thing was an epic, epic mistake that got a lot of press. And now this idea of saying this girl, and I think it doesn't help their case that she looks like such a little girl. I mean, she's 22, but if you look at pictures of her, she looks really young. The picture, she looks really cute. You know, she looks like a a college student who wants to go study somewhere for the semester. This whole thing seems so blown out of proportion and so out of whack. I personally, you know, I think of myself as a moderate. I do not think that BDS is evil. I do not think that BDS is anti-Semitic. I do not support BDS. I think that it's a mistake, but I do not think automatically BDS equals anti-Semitic. And even if it were, even if BDS were anti-Semitic, to say that at that point that Israel's strategy should be to not let into the country supporters of BDS, to me, is so ludicrous. If what Israel, the image that Israel is trying to convey to the world is of being a liberal democracy who is proud of itself, who feels confident, right, then do all the Hasbara you want. How could this be a good strategy? It seems so insane to me. What do you think, Ari? Right. I mean, I I definitely had a similar reaction at first to this story. Um, You know, there was even um, an op-ed in the New York Times co-written by Brett Stevens and Barry Weiss, who are kind of like the two Jewish conservative-leaning um, writers of the New York Times, yeah. and they wrote I, this... I saw that on, on Twitter. Someone had posted that yeah. article, and they were like, when you've lost Brett Stevens right, and Barry right. Weiss... And they, they wrote in this op-ed how ridiculous... They were basically saying exactly what you said, mm-hmm. like free speech, and this is ridiculous. She's just they a got student. She's trying to... Probably. Yeah. She's just going to Israel to learn, and this is so absurd that Israel would consider this so dangerous to the country. It makes Israel look pathetic. It makes them look so insecure. And I, I don't think that that's necessarily completely wrong i'm not saying i completely disagree with that but i was just trying to understand like even just on a practical like basic level how did this law happen like and the fact that it's being enforced in this way like whoever is making those decisions like what is going through their head because don't they as long as they're you know somewhat intelligent and a thoughtful person like don't they realize how bad this looks as for a democracy to be doing that the thing is i don't think it's as simple as seems at first because first of all there are many countries in the world obviously not open democracies but there are many countries where israeli citizens are not allowed in period i was this past summer i spent a day in dubai connecting flights through kazakhstan uh-huh. uh, i mentioned that on the podcast also <laughs> contact me for more information on that. um Name and drop in kazakhstan you don't hear that on many podcasts yeah and i was with a friend who's also jewish and we didn't wear our kippahs just because we just didn't. Mm-hmm. We thought it would be safer. But, I mean, we didn't hide our Jewishness. We actually had, I don't know, kosher meals on the flight, from Arab Emirates flight, uh-huh. leaving Dubai. And I was curious what would happen with that. And it was fine. And, and nobody said anything. Uh-huh. But if we had Israeli passports, we would not be allowed into that country. And that is kind of crazy. And there are a lot of countries like that. So, I think, for so first of all, for Israelis to feel that they have a right 
um, as a country to deny entry to people who want to delegitimize their entire existence as a country, I think is not so crazy. On top of that, every country, even America, has rules about who's allowed in, and if the country feels that a particular person is a threat in some way to the country, they won't be allowed in, especially if, if it's for a long-term visit or for a student visa type of thing, which this was. So I don't think it's that crazy. And I also, in doing research for this story, I actually found that there is an American law on the books from the 1970s that prohibits companies and citizens from engaging in boycotts of other countries if that boycott is not sanctioned by the U.S. government. Now, this seems like it might be the type of law that isn't really enforced so much, right. but it I is mean, it a law on the so books. Ludicrous. And it, and this, the law was actually made with Israel in mind, but in 1977, because it knew that the Arab League at the time was calling for boycotts, and so America... Israel as America's ally, America set up this law. In France, um, BDS is considered a hate crime, and people have been prosecuted and fined for engaging in BDS. It's hard to prove that somebody is like actively in BDS because BDS is about not doing something. Mm -hmm. But this this example I saw, we'll include a link, was um, a number of people who were wearing anti-Israel like stuff on their clothing and went to a supermarket and were putting stickers, anti-Israel stickers, boycott Israel stickers in the supermarket. They were fined like a few hundred dollars each or Uh something. And there's also this uh, comedian in France whose tour was canceled because he was repeatedly, uh, you know, criticizing Israel and I guess calling for boycotts of Israel. He was belittling the Holocaust and his tour was canceled by the country for being a hate crime you know so i don't think first but of all that, is, that's not what america does right I, I think in general we don't believe in that right even think about the the university of michigan right there was a news story that happened i think it was last week or two weeks ago where there were a couple of professors university of michigan was one of them but there were a couple of students who were traveling to israel to study abroad and professors refused to give them a letter of recommendation mm-hmm. these professors weren't fired I, I think that was the right decision. Do you think they should have been fired? To not penalize them yeah. for that. They're allowed to make that choice. I mean, it's interesting, and that brings up a point about the Lara Al-Qasem story. That is really the, how BDS started. It started as an academic boycott, uh-huh. and those professors who wouldn't write the recommendations are consistent with BDS in not wanting or not endorsing students going to Israel to study, as opposed to Lara Al-Qasem, who's actually going to Israel right. in She's order to study in a school there, which is the opposite of a boycott. She's paying tuition. She's going right. to buy street food. Like she, She's actually going to be supporting the country. And if anything, she's going to be listening to Israeli professors speak about things in complicated ways, and she's her mind is going to be broadened. BDS is, is a simplification I mean, of a conflict. But, yes, but I, I, right. I mean, I, I wouldn't, that's being very, very optimistic about what her experience is going to be like. I highly doubt, I mean, in general, we all know that people with very strong opinions, people who are active and causes don't tend to change their minds or be open to hearing the other side to the extent that they're actually going to change their ways. I mean, I'm not saying it's impossible, but I don't really foresee that happening with her. And I don't think they're worried that she's going to like be a secret agent and take down the government. So or what are they? What are they? What are they worried about? So I think that gets to the bottom of the question. I also found it very interesting that when the Supreme Court said she can come into the country, they didn't say it's because this law is invalid. They were saying because there isn't sufficient proof that she is actually a BDS activist. And she actually wrote a letter with her lawyers saying that she uh, will not engage in any BDS. She didn't deny having engaged in it in the past, but she said, when I'm in Israel, I'm not going to be doing any BDS. So, and then the court, I guess, 
believed her or and or said in, in addition to that what she's done in the past isn't enough so but the court implied was that if she was really a hardcore bds person then it would be justified well the court's job is to in. apply the, the law. law right 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 of course but i mean israel doesn't have a constitution so it's like i i don't know the full legal uh ramifications of it but I mean, the, the supreme court is also known to be pretty left-wing generally in israel it's also there's actually i was when i was looking into this i saw that there's two laws that are very similar so this law was only the law we're discussing about not about israel retaining the right to not allow entry for bds activists that Mm -hmm. was just passed last year 2017 right there's another law called the law for prevention of damage to the state of israel through boycott and that law originally it was it allowed um, Israelis to take criminal action against people who can be shown to have damaged them, it, the Israelis, through BDS. That was downgraded um, to only allowed to take civil action. Like they can find, they can sue them for money. Um, but this was a law that was actually passed in 2011 and upheld by the Supreme Court after some modifications. And it wasn't implemented. Nobody tried to actually act on that law from 2011 until 2018. Did you hear about this? It's going to be. No. You're going to laugh. Remember when Lord, the singer from yeah. New Zealand, canceled her Israel concert? Three Israeli students, together with this Israeli civil rights group called Shurat Hadin, filed a lawsuit claiming $13,000 in emotional damages because they had bought tickets and they were excited for the show and it got canceled uh-huh. and that damaged them emotionally. And they didn't sue Lord. You know who they sued? They sued the two New Zealand activists who sent Lord an op- a public letter and that she responded to on Twitter and then less than a week later she canceled her concert. That's so hilarious. They're, so they're suing those two New Zealanders, one of whom is Jewish and one of whom is Palestinian. Just a side note, we live in such a stupid world that that is a thing that just happened. <laughs> yeah, so one of the two who got sued I read she said something like when she saw that she thought it was a joke at first Right. and it's so absurd and it is kind right. of Did absurd. Did it get dismissed? So it's. I think it's still in litigation right. okay. now. I think again when most people hear something like that it sounds absurd and it's sounds petty and it sounds like there's no way that that's actually going to help Israel's image or interests in any way. All it can do is make Israel look bad and stupid. But I think it's coming from a legitimate place. And I think the real conversation is about understanding where that is coming from, understanding where that fear of BDS is coming from in Israelis and not just dismissing it as ridiculous and absurd. I think I think that makes a lot of sense, but I just want I, again, I think we need to differentiate between what is Israel's right, right, and what is the law, right? If they want to say, "Okay, it's our right to bar these types of activists and, you know, things like that." You know what? That's true. It is their right. But at the same time, when we talk about what's good for Israel, you know, I always come back to that analogy, right? Well, whenever you talk about an argument, I feel like I learned this like in high school, like in like, you know, debate where it's like there's 10% of people on one far extreme of the argument. There's 10% of people on the other far extreme of the argument. When you're debating or you're arguing something, you are trying to capture the hearts and minds of the 80% in the middle Mm -hmm. who maybe they sort of drift to one extreme or the other, but they don't have sort of their opinion set in stone. Okay. When Israel does something like bar the 10% or bar the 1% or whatever it is, and they think they're making a strong statement about that 1% and they're saying, no, you don't understand these people. We, we it's absolutely within our, not only our right, but our interest. What they're doing is they're alienating the 80%. Going back to Brett Stevens and Barry Weiss, when Brett Stevens and Barry Weiss are like, okay, enough is enough. You're being ridiculous. You're not being a little ridiculous. You're being crazy ridiculous if you've right. lost those people. This is just, it, when Israel is thinking about Hasbara, it is crazy crazy to me that they're busy talking about like USB and like irrigation and they're doing things like this. 
This is so bad for their image. It's embarrassing. I understand that. It's hard to argue against that, especially coming from, you know, as we are American citizens raised on American values of openness and free speech. Actually, like we've spoken about this before, actually, on the podcast. Free speech in Europe is not the same as free speech in America. There are limits, especially related to Jewish things. Like in Germany, you can go to jail for denying the Holocaust. Right. Do you think that's a good thing? That's a foreign concept to us. I think when it comes to things like that, you really have to put things in cultural and historic perspective. And in Germany, they are so vigilant and scared of any kind of repetition of the atrocities that they, you know, did not that many years ago, that they have gone to that opposite extreme and limited free speech for that purpose. I mean, I don't, I see both sides of that argument. I'm okay with it being illegal. I'm very okay with that. I look at things like, um, have you been reading about, uh, I think he actually, he might've just written a book, the, um, the son of like one of the KKK leaders, who I think that there was a big article that came out about two years ago that basically he totally denounced his former views. He had been like not only the child of leaders, he had been an activist himself. Mm-hmm. He had a radio show. He was like really, he was like the millennial voice of okay. the movement. And he basically um, was outed. He was like on a college campus, like mm-hmm. totally normal, liberal, secular college campus. He was outed. And a couple of people that he had been friendly with were Shabbat observant Jews. Mm. And they basically said like, okay, you know what? Like, let's just invite him for Shabbat dinners. Like, let's just like pretend we don't know about it or let's just not talk about it. And they just basically did that. And he, at that point, had been shunned and he didn't have so many friends left. And it was like a pretty big deal for him. And he kept going and eventually, and he he directly connects those two things, that he was accepted by people who he thought were vermin and right. were evil and were disgusting. And over that time, there, there was this breakdown and this erosion of his previous beliefs because they kept talking to him and kept asking him questions and kept trying to explain things from their perspective. And eventually he was able to see a more nuanced view of the world. I don't know. Maybe I'm a little bit naive, no, that's, but I tend to lean in yeah, that direction. If, really someone is, if someone is denying the Holocaust, putting them in jail to me seems so counterintuitive. Like how many people come out of jail being like, wow, that was crazy. I can't believe I denied the Holocaust. Like how could that be more important than education, than meeting survivors? That like I, I just feel like that's so ca- Yes, it's true that I'm American, so we we have the bias, you know, obviously we're very pro free speech and things like that. But it, to me it just seems like what's our long-term goal here? Yeah, what's I, Israel's long-term goal right. here, right? To bring it back to to Lara, this this student. Right. I mean, so we were talking about Germany and Europe for a second, but getting getting back to Israel, I, I think the conflict in Israel is <laughs> Obviously, it's personal to us, so it feels this way. That's more complicated than anything else. But it's much more complicated even than like anti-Semitism in America or Europe, Nazism, KKK, whatever, because it's so deep and it's about like two people and the land and there's so much and it's so heavy. And Israel, I just, I don't want to be, you know, go in circles here, but Israel just, I think, feels very, very threatened by BDS specifically because they're looking at it in a broader context, looking at who is doing this, how has this played out in the past? You know, I guess they're probably thinking of the Holocaust and precursors to the Holocaust and in terms of boycotting and shunning and like the world, feeling like the world is kind of like ganging up on Israel and delegitimizing it. And BDS is a big part of that or that potential to become that. And that's how they feel. And I don't, it's like you're saying, that's always the perpetual like catch 22. When you have something that's working against you, 
do you reject it and and fight back against it and potentially rile them up and make them right. angrier exactly. or do you embrace them yeah. and hug them and, and try to, to explain do. Yeah. it is hard to do and I, I understand why Israel would feel so defensive about this and you know at an emotional level I, I, I do you're right it is personal and it is real and they're they're thinking about you know the state is not that secure and I understand the the emotional perspective but I think practically speaking and I think ultimately I would imagine most of them would agree that this is not you know an actual strategy that is going to help them overcome BDS yeah I mean so there there have been a few embarrassing examples of this very same thing happening about people being detained and questioned in the airport I'm curious to see like how many more times that's going to happen you know in the next few months yeah. or if Israel is going to kind of like learn their lesson and see that yeah. this is not a strategy well I think she was the first the, since this law was passed which was fairly recently I think fifth, the, I was reading recently mm -hmm. 15 people have been detained and mm -hmm. she was the first one to uh, fight the legality uh, okay um, but she was the first one and she won. Right. So we'll see. But but you're, as you said before, the only reason she won was not because they said this law is unconstitutional. Right. I mean, they don't have a constitution, but it was not because they said this law is wrong and they didn't strike down the law. They said, oh, she doesn't actually fall into the parameters. Right. So it could be that the next person would lose. I mean, if they were a more obvious BDS supporter, then maybe it would be a little bit more complicated. Yeah. Even though I don't think it should be. Tell me what So that's our show. I think it's uh, Monday evening when we record this. Uri, I think what we're both about to do is probably go buy 20, 30 lottery tickets. Definitely. Mega millions. $2 yeah. billion. Dollars. So Uri, what would, what would you do? Imagine you won, right? Let's say they call your number. What, what's your plan? Well, one of my overarching philosophies of life is mo money, mo problems. Mm -hmm. So said. I don't think I would really want $2 billion, but in another way, I really do want it. <laughs> Um, I obviously would give a ton to charity, mm -hmm. um, but I also, I think... Like, if not now, mostly? Some to them, mm -hmm. maybe. Maybe like a, a dollar or two. <laughs> no, so, it's funny because not some people have like very expensive hobbies or tastes. So I actually do have something that I want to do that would cost potentially tens of millions of dollars, but that's like to produce my own movies, mm -hmm. um, I think would be pretty cool. And those can get a little pricey. Uh -huh. um, so I do have like a specific thing. Like if I had a hundred million dollars, I know exactly like how I would use it. You know, <laughs> I'd make a movie or two. So you have a plan. I do have a plan. Yeah. It sounds like you're prepared to win. I'm ready to win. Uh -huh. Yeah. Like, you would not be shocked. I'd be surprised, but not shocked. <laughs> what about you, okay, Rifki? Well what said. would you do with the money? I am The idea of having so much money stresses me out. I think I'm also one of those people who, like, I would always read those articles about, like, oh, they won the lottery. You know, where are they now? And they're, like, always, Never like... Never in a good place. It's, it's destroyed their family. It broke up their marriage. Like, I read things like that, and I'm like, oh, why do it? Of course, you know, I would be different. I'm way more Everyone mature. Everyone says they yeah. would be different. But it's actually for that reason. I'm, I'm actually scared, so I wouldn't even buy a lottery ticket. You can buy one and give it to me. Oh, but you know what I would do, honestly, if I won the lottery, I think I would use it every week to sponsor Talking Ta Tough. Right. Well, I was going to say also, we, it's I, a worthy cause. we don't need a new studio because I don't know how oh a studio God. could be any nicer no than this one up. already is. Yeah. 
But uh, maybe we could like pay for some good guests or something. Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> I mean, we already take a pretty high salary right, for this. Right. But you know, I could go up a little bit. That that also. Yeah. <laughs> well, if any of our talking talk list listeners wins the lottery, of course we'd appreciate your support. Um, but congratulations, and I hope your family does not break up as a result. Um, maybe keep it to yourself if you win. Um, thank you all so so much for listening. As always, we love hearing from you. Please email us at talkingtalklistpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, please join the conversation on our Facebook page, Talking Talkless Podcast. And thanks as always to Drive In Productions. They are the sponsors for now until we win the lottery. <laughs> and um, thank you to Triple Threat Trio featuring Rage Brigade. They are the official band of Talking Talkless. All right, bye everyone. Bye.